Amen. Amen. Can you guys grab your Bibles and pull them up to Acts chapter 4? As you're doing, I want to ask, can you guys hear me in the back? Mona, can you hear me sort of? A little bit? Speak, speak up. All right. Well, uh, good morning. Oh, man, it's so good to see you guys. You don't even know. We've been preaching to an empty room for two months, shooting from here up. I'm glad I wore pants today. It's, it's so good to see you guys for real and pray with you and worship with you. Um, and even so we got a new little camera right now and we're online on Facebook and a bunch of people who couldn't make it today, health risks, etc. They, they're, they're, they're at home and they're worshiping with us at home and just want to say hi to everybody. We love you guys. I'm so thankful for you uh, to worship alongside. Also, I'm thankful to that Pastor Josh led us through a prayer like this, a prayer of, of lament, a prayer of grief. This is something that's going on globally, and we as Christians cannot stick our heads in the stand. We can't. We think that if we, if we, if we keep our head, if we say anything, then, then we're going to be uh, politically pushed on one side or the other. The truth of the gospel remains the same. Jesus is the only healing that can, that can be offered. The only healing for our nation, for our hearts, for sin is in, in and through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? So we come together and we pray and we grieve and we, and we do this together because we are a body, we are one. Amen? Amen. Well, um, before we get going, I want to say during this coronavirus stuff, we started doing prayer three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Monday at lunchtime, Wednesday on, uh, uh, at nighttime, and then Friday mornings, like 7.30 in the, or 7 in the morning. Um, and if you'd like to continue to join us, we'd love that. We're going to keep praying for a, a, a long time. We want to continue to build this culture of prayer. And so please join us um, this week. If you'd like more information on that, just go ahead, go on Facebook. Uh, we also have information um, uh, via text or email. If you walked in and you forgot to grab something like this, um, there, this, this is our little communion uh, kit. Uh, so at some point, right after the sermon, I'm going to pray, and then we're actually going to take communion together. It's, there's right on the welcome desk, and you can go ahead and grab one, but we're going to use that at the end of the service. Um, uh, and uh, as we begin to open up, open back up in phases as a church, next week we are going to be back at the Boys and Girls Club, Lord willing, uh, right across the street. Um, and so please come there, and we need help in some tangible ways if you want to help and you haven't yet. Uh, please join with us. And, uh, and so now let's open up to uh, Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to pray for our time one more time before we dive in together. Father in heaven, we love you. We worship you. We say thank you for this day. While the storm is coming uh, from the Gulf of Mexico, we still say you are good. We pray to the one who can calm storms. We also pray to the one who can calm the storm of sin in our life, calm the storm of racism, segregation, brutality. So we pray to you in faith, Lord, please move. Maybe even use this time as a revival. Please, Lord, begin it in our hearts, though. No revival, no movement started without personal revival in the hearts of the believers. So I pray that you do that here and now. Please, Lord, quiet our minds. 
I know that there's a lot of things going on with fans and humidity and children, and yet, Lord, you are still here. So quiet our minds that we can be sensitive to what you might have to say to us through your word, God. I pray if there's anything that I'm speaking of myself, please uh, break that down and blow it away. But if there's anything of you, may it remain in the hearts of your hearers. We love you, God. All these things we lift up in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. If you didn't have, if there's, there's sermon notes uh, that were texted out or are put in emails, if you're not on that, just let us know and we'd love to put you on that. I also put them on the, on the slides today if you'd like, but we're not going to be handing out uh, things for a little while just to minimize the shared documents, but if you'd like, you can pull that out or take notes that should be on the, on the screen. But have you ever considered what the most frequent objections to Christianity are? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Maybe it was you. Maybe you haven't been a Christian for very long, or maybe you interact with people who are not Christians. Maybe you go to coffee regularly with someone who is not. What is the, 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 the typical objections to Christianity? And what's the top ones? Well, today we're going to get to what I think is the one, the, the, the hinge point, the stop for people, the stumbling block, so to speak. We're going to get to that part today because this is what people have most against Christianity, and it is called the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. There's no, one, no other name under heaven given by which men and women and children and anyone can be saved, and we're going to get to that today. Now, I'm excited. Acts has been phenomenal already. And this is the first time we get to preach Acts to people, so I'm, we're going to need participation. I'm going to need you guys to say something because I've been deprived for two months of getting participation. But let's do this together. Over the past few weeks, we've heard from two different sermons. There are two different sermons, the first sermons in the early church, and they were by the Apostle Peter. First two sermons ever given. And Peter delivered both sermons. And as a preacher myself, I love the fact that the second one looks exactly like the first one. It's the same message. Peter tells the audience who they are, that there are people who killed Jesus, and then he tells them who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, killed, raised to life. And then he tells them what Jesus offers, forgiveness in his name. And then finally he tells them what to do, repent and believe the gospel. It's simple. That's a four-point message. That's pretty Southern Baptist-y if I, I do say so myself. But that's it. That's his message. He didn't try to get overly creative and get really uh, creative teams to get together and say, how can we get uh, this cool sermon series to get as many people here as possible? That wasn't his objective. What did he do? He simply preached the gospel. Go figure. And what happened? Thousands of people were saved. Because it wasn't about his creativity, it was about the gospel, the only thing that saves, the stumbling block. Peter simply preached the gospel and thousands of sa were saved. In fact, at the end of the sermon, uh, the second sermon, we'll see here in, uh, in our passage that 5,000 men were converted. They were saved, born again. Furthermore, one of the catalysts for the second sermon was an, uh, an example an example, it was of a miraculous healing. 
A man who was lame from birth, 40 years old, was laying at the gate beautiful, and Peter and John, they looked at him and they said, silver and gold I have not, but what I have I give to you in the name of the Lord, rise. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. I was telling this to my wife. I don't remember what preacher I heard this from, but it was really hilarious. Some preacher, I don't remember which one. I, I listened to lots of guys, but he was talking about how he preaches in a college town. And he says, one of the hardest things about preaching in a college town is there's not a lot of tithing from college students. And uh, he said, when the, when the plate came, comes by and hundreds of kids were there and uh, it comes to the front, he sees um, an egg McMuffin sitting in the offering plate, and written on the wrapping of the Egg McMuffin, it said, silver and gold I have not, but what I have I give to you in the name of the Lord. You can keep your Egg McMuffins, but uh, I thought that was funny. But this man, in the name of Jesus Christ, he was risen, and he stood up 40 years old, never been able to walk. He was lame, and he's dancing dancing. 5,000 people were watching. Imagine that object lesson. Imagine the power that would be coming from the pulpit if the pastor was standing right next to a man that was just healed by Jesus. The power that comes from that. And that's where we're at. Oh, the, the preacher would say, hey, there is healing in the name of Jesus. See, exhibit A, this man. That's amazing. That will gain attention really quick, right? Right? Well, the first thing I'd like, there's four kind of movements in the, in the sermon. The first thing we need to look at is we're going to look at the first four verses and we see the response to the gospel message. A response to the gospel message. And this is the response of the religious leaders. But what happens in this passage is this response to healing, the response to the growing crowds of Christians, the thousands of people that were witnessing this man be healed, the chief religious leaders... They arrest Peter. They arrest John. So let's look in verse 1. Verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Turn to your neighbor and say, greatly annoyed. Not, don't say that they greatly annoy you. That's what they felt. That's what the Sadducees felt. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Notice that. Circle line. Underline that. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who have, heard, who have heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The response to the gospel message by, by these religious leaders was annoyance, irritation, Irritation. They were triggered. They're triggered by the truth of Jesus. Truth that was demonstrated not just in 5,000 new believers, but this living, breathing example of a man healed from being lame. But that didn't matter to the religious leaders. Imagine seeing a miracle like that and your response in your heart is annoyance. Imagine that. Why? Was it, were they upset that they weren't getting the attention? Were they upset that they aren't the ones that being able to do that miracle? If we, Lord, help us from being a people that are annoyed at him doing a work in someone else. May that never be the case. But they were annoyed. They were annoyed. So the Sadducees, really quick, I want to I mention, so Pete, uh, 
uh, Luke, who wrote, the, who wrote Acts, was very clear on writing who was there. The priests, the, ch- the temple commander, the, the guy who's in charge of, uh, uh, of the crowds, etc., and the Sadducees. The Sadducees. Now, we got to highlight the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe, they're an interesting bunch. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. And that's why they're so sad, you see, right? You heard that before? Oh, they're so sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in miracles. But why were they there at the temple? Because they were wealthy, elite, and they were more political than religious. The Sadducees were a group of people, elite, wealthy, and focused on positioning with Rome and even used Jewish theology as a tool, using religious rules as a tool to gain popularity among the people. Does that sound like any politicians that we know today? And I'm not trying to step on toes. People who don't know Christ, they don't know healing in his name, but they use religious rules, maybe religious jargon, in order to position themselves to gain the approval of the believers. Does that sound familiar? I'm getting serious now. That is what's happening. There are Sadducees among us today. So that's why they were greatly annoyed, because they were not, because Peter was not preaching rules. He was preaching resurrection. He was not preaching rules. He was preaching resurrection. In the same way for us at Redeemer, we do not preach a list of rules or moral obligations to make people acceptable before God. We don't stand here every Sunday, every Sunday, day after day or week after week, and preaching these rules in order to make you right with God. We don't talk about as much about what you do, but as much as we talk about, we talk about what he has done through Jesus Christ. There's freedom in that. There's freedom. We can preach. What we preach is not what you must do, but what he has done. And this is 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, where we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as the Lord, and ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. Of course, we do seek to be holy as I am holy. We do pray for and encourage righteous living and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But that is what a believer must do. That's not the entrance. That's not the gate. Jesus, uh, I heard a pastor one time tell me, uh, Jesus is the bath. You don't need to take a bath to come to Jesus. He's the bath. It's about what he has done. So after ticking off the religious elite, Peter and John were thrown into prison one night for the, for the whole night. And I wonder what went through their heads. Because remember, this isn't that much long after Jesus was thrown into prison the same way, overnight. And in a legal trial, uh, took Jesus and led him ultimately to the cross. But the second movement, what we see the next day is we see their boldness in the face of opposition. Boldness in the face of opposition. Let's keep reading in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And this is, highlight these next two verses. This is like it. It's awesome. This Jesus, Peter says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <sighs> Sounds pretty familiar to the first two sermons, doesn't it? So the next day, these two men were brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was different than just the, the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin were the religious leaders. Annas. Annas was a, he was the, a, a, the priest, but he wasn't the acting high priest at the time. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was. But he has an honorable mention as a high priest. But Caiaphas, Annas, they were there. The whole, the whole religious leaders of rabbis are all surround them in a half circle. And so Peter and John standing right in the midst of them, and they're giving this defense. I think that the opposition of the Sanhedrin was obviously birthed out of fear. Seeing Peter and John and the disciples gain so much steam, thousands of people coming to know the message of Jesus and believing in the gospel, it could come back to them badly, right? Because they're the ones that crucified their Messiah. So they're fearful. I know that. So the leaders questioned them, saying, by what power or what name have you done this? Verse 7. But I want to pause right here. What are they really asking? Brothers and sisters, what are they really asking? I think, what, what power, what name are you doing this? There's two questions here. It's, there's two things they're, kind of, they're, they're trying to ask. It's a question of ability and authority. Ability and authority. How did you do this? How did you heal this guy? Ability. But also, under what name are you doing this? Whose authority, who gave you the authority to heal this guy? So this is a common question. The authority is a common question in Jewish culture, in the rabbinic, uh, rabbinic history. So in the Hebrew term for this is, is called the shmicha. Uh, it's authority or rabbinical ordination. And the authority was passed down from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi, from leader to leader to leader, all the way back to Moses and Joshua in Deuteronomy 34. So usually... When a leader, when a Sanhedrin asks somebody, whose name are you teaching under? Do, do you guys remember they asked that to Jesus? Multiple times. This sounds like a new teaching. Whose authority are you speaking under? Usually what a rabbi would say is, I'm teaching under the authority of Moses through my own rabbi, which was Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Gamliel or Rabbi Jesus. But, but when they asked Jesus about his authority, Mark 1, Matthew 7, Matthew 28, so the authority is about ability and authority, and they're saying, who gave you this authority? And, and Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. I'm not speaking under just Moses. I'm, I'm God speaking. And what was their response? 
I love it. They're like, Jesus, he's our authority. So the question of ability and authority, the disciples were making a point. Why are we being examined? Because we did something good? We healed a guy. So you arrested us because we healed a guy. Huh. It's like you would be changing the tire. This is totally, totally not the same thing. But it's like you're helping somebody change a tire on the side of the road and a policeman arrests you because they don't like the good deed that you're doing. Now magnify that by a million. They healed a person who was sick and they arrested them. And so Peter says, hey, uh, why, are you, why are you arresting us? Because we did something good? But then he goes on and he says, th there's three things that we can pull from this. The power of the apostles was by the Holy Spirit. What, where was your ability? Where's this ability come from? And in verse 8, notice in verse 8, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't miss this. Because Jesus commissioned them and said, you will receive power. You, say it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses under my authority in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and even in front of the Sanhedrin. So it's important to note that the miracle itself is not proof of the resurrection. I need to say that uh, because uh, your word will testify Satan can perform miracles, right? 2 Thessalonians 2. Or false prophets. False prophets can perform wonders. Deuteronomy 13. We'll see in the end times in Revelation. I'd love to talk about that if you'd like to talk about that. But the end time there will be a false prophet who will do signs and wonders. So a miracle itself is not proof of the resurrection. The, the power of the Spirit, through a sign of wonder like that, must be coupled under the authority of Jesus Christ. Under the authority of Jesus Christ. So uh, in verse 10, let's look in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. They were not operating out of their own power. They were not operating out of the power of the devil or the authority of man. They are speaking out of the authority of God himself through his servant Jesus. All authority in heaven has been given to me, Matthew 28. So remember this. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. The Holy Spirit gives power to God's people always for the sake of Jesus' name. And we need to say that. I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit gives power to his people, but always for the sake of Jesus' name. There's never an instance in the New Testament or the Bible, well, in the New Testament, that are void of the gospel of Jesus and miracles together. The Holy Spirit is the most humble person in the universe and always points to the authority of Jesus Christ. So if you see a miracle and, it, and, there, and the person who is part of that is not singing the authority and praise of Jesus Christ, who is not proclaiming the gospel, but is saying, hey, look what I can do. Look what I can do. I can make your leg longer. I can raise this person from the dead. The uh, first time I interacted with that was I was leading a team in, in Athens, Greece. And we were uh, downtown and we were doing a performance, gathering crowds, spreading and sharing the gospel in twos and threes. And a, and a man, he was Australian, he came up and he started cutting into every conversation that our students, our college students were having. 
And they were saying, no, 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 you're talking too much about Jesus. It's about the Holy Spirit. Look what I can do. I raised a person from dead yesterday. And I'm like, that means nothing to me. Satan does stuff like that, just so you know. But you're not speaking under the authority of Jesus Christ. Be gone. And he left. But that was one of the few times I was just like, I'm going to get physical right now, you know? Okay, sorry. The, the Holy Spirit gives power to his people, but always does it, always does it for the sake of Jesus' name. He's so humble. He points to Jesus. There are never an instance in the Bible. Look it up if you would like, but, but the gospel is always coupled with it. Silly demonstrations of power bragged about aren't spoken in the name of authority in Jesus. Then those are empty, empty miracles. They point to nothing except the person who's doing them. So the Holy Spirit gives, gave them boldness and power, right? In submission to the authority of Jesus. I think that's important. And then they continued in that boldness by reminding the leaders of something. And it's the third little point under here. Is, uh, reminded him the message of the apostles was the truth of Jesus. So the boldness was from the Spirit. The authority was under the name of Jesus. And the message was the truth about Jesus. This, is, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. Everybody say, no one else. No one else. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given by which men may be saved. This is the most divisive statement known to man. This is the objection with Christianity. If you boil it down to it, they'll say objections like hell. They'll say objections like hypocrisy. But really, when it comes down to it, if you draw the line in the sand and really say there is no other way to God. Well, uh, there, I, was, I was thinking about this uh, in the shower. Great, there you go. And uh, there are many ways to God, but there's only one way to salvation. At the end, what I mean by that is at the end, you will be kneeling before God, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then you will be separated for eternity. So yes, there are many paths to God, but there really is only one way to be with him, reign with him, live with him forever. Does that make sense? Okay, so, but, but the, it's still the same. The truth remains the same. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. So there is a... Uh, an ancient parable, we've, t- we've talked about this before, an ancient Buddhist Hindu parable. You may have heard it. Studying it in philosophy, I heard it. Um, but it's about the blind man and the elephants. Has anybody heard of this before? About the blind man and the elephants? Yeah? Um, the blind man and the elephants. The parable, it's a Hindu parable, and it goes that there is a raja, like a, a narrator. He's like a spiritual leader. Um, he's t- telling the story about six blind men and there's a big elephant and oh and they're saying oh well it's kind of like a a a symbol an uh, analogy of god one is feeling uh the leg and says oh an elephant is like um a tree trunk it feels like a tree trunk because he's blind and then another one is holding on to the tail saying oh an elephant is like a rope another one's holding on to the trunk and oh the elephant is like a a snake or holding on, another one is holding on to the tusk saying, oh, this elephant is like a spear. Or, or the ear. An elephant is a fan. That's what an elephant is. But the, but the Raja says, no, you are all blind. You only have a part of the elephant. 
And that's kind of true, right? That they were blind and they had a part of the elephant. But that analogy is supposed to say that all religions have a piece of God and kind of describing a little bit about God, but they don't have the full picture. And on the surface, that was like, for me, I was like, huh. And then I took two minutes to think about it. And I went, no, because there's two problems with it. Number one, who sees the whole elephant? Well, the, the, the narrator, Raja, right? He sees the whole elephant. And what he's doing is hypocritically saying that he has the whole picture, but every other religion in the world only has a part of it, including Christianity, Muslims, Buddhists, etc. But, but the Raja, he has the whole understanding of it, right? That's the first problem. It's, it's hypocritical, to be honest. But I think really when it comes down to it, the biggest problem with it is what if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant says, I'm an elephant and I am much bigger than you think, but I'm an elephant and I look like this and I'm like this. And what Peter is saying is this, the elephant spoke and his name is Jesus. We believe in Christianity that yes, maybe we are, we, there's humility in Christianity because we say, oh, there's some things about God we definitely don't know. We're finite. We see through a glass dimly. But Jesus has revealed himself. God has made himself known through the person of Jesus. So there's salvation really in one way, one person. If there is a God, he would let his people know how to get to him and not just stand silently in the dark. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me does not walk in darkness. <laughs> so in here, Peter is saying, the elephant spoke and made himself known to us. There's salvation in no one else. And then he moves on and, 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 and talks about the cornerstone, which is found in Psalm 118, uh, Go ahead and look that up in time. But the cornerstone, a cornerstone is set in the foundation. It is what you build everything on. 1 Peter 2, the living stone, which has been rejected. 1 Corinthians 3, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, brothers and sisters, please, especially in light of the times right now with the, the racial segregation and the, the brutality and all the tension going on, please, Go to Ephesians 2, read that today. Because those, it says that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility. Well, we don't need to have those type of di differences. Yes, there's beauty in our diversity. We don't all have to look the same. But in Jesus Christ, we are brothers. We are sisters. There's unity. He breaks down that dividing wall, and we become one family. We look different. We talk different. But we're one family. Look up Ephesians 2, please. So Peter, he knows the word. He explains that this cornerstone was Jesus Christ rejected by them. I think that it's bold. I think it's bold. But then that moves to that third, that third phase, the really quick one, paralyzed by the truth. These guys were paralyzed. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated men, they were astonished and recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing that, this, that the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. And then they said, what are we going to do with these men? For that, a notable sign has been performed, 
through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it won't spread any further among the people, let's warn them, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And they were astounded at the boldness of these people. And I need to say that boldness is, is a Greek word called parisia, which is actually spirit-induced boldness. It's not boldness based off of their education. They were common. They're fishermen. It's not boldness based off of their personality. It's boldness based off of the Holy Spirit's filling. I think that's, that's awesome. And they do it in the name of Jesus. They said, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Mark that down because what they do next, number four, is they double down with obedience. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we can but speak we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And after they've been further threatened, they let them go. Now, Peter and John, they didn't cave to this intimidation, but they doubled down. They said, you tell us what's right. Should we believe you or should we believe God? And then they say, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. I think the NASB translates this rightly and correctly. When the NASB says, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. I think that that's right. We cannot stop. And the reason why I think it's right is because it is a direct reference to Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in me a heart that is burning with fire, shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can't. I can't. Church, okay, we're, we're closing. It's important, scriptural, to obey rulers and authorities in earth. We're called to do that. Romans 13, 1 through 17 says this. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Jesus himself. But we are never to do that in a way that would contradict God's word or violate our biblical conscience. We're never supposed to, if the government would take away freedoms limiting the proclamation of the gospel that limit our ability to proclaim salvation in no one else, then we must with love choose to double down with obedience. And I want you to think about the things in the world. What is worthy of doubling down against the governing authorities? And if it doesn't have to do with God's word or the gospel conscience, it's not, we, we must be obedient. But again, if things contradict God's word, we double down on obedience to God and God alone. He's our authority. But after this, the authorities, uh, they're still blind. They see only their power and position at risk. So they scolded them and said, all right, no, we're serious. No more healings. I don't want to see one more leper walking around here clean. I don't want to see one more lame person standing up. No more of this Jesus stuff. And then they let him go. It's such a fantastic portion of scripture. Uh, uh, I love it. But ultimately, this passage, just if I could have you take home this big idea, it's the Holy Spirit provides boldness to proclaim truth of the gospel in the face of opposition. Believe it or not, we, there's going to be coming a day. I, I know I'm going a little long and I apologize. There's going to be a day sooner than later where opposition blatant opposition is going to come for those who proclaim Jesus Christ. Maybe you've already experienced it in your workplace or with family or friends. 
but blatant opposition will come. Know that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives that boldness to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, not to demonstrate power. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of the opposition. And really quick, four quick takeaways for us on this. When we face opposition, this is, this is how we build up an immunity to opposition. Number one, we must remember the profound truth of the gospel, the dividing line, that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. No other name under heaven is given. And the disciples would not have risked everything if they didn't believe this, if they weren't convinced of this truth. Number two, we must be personally transformed by the gospel. You will not withstand opposition and, 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 and persecution if you, not, if you were not transformed by the gospel. You might know things about the gospel. You might be able to quote scriptures. But if you are not personally transformed by Jesus Christ and his gospel, then you will not withstand opposition. Number three, we must have a heart for others to hear the gospel. We must have compassion for those without the gospel because that in the gospel is life and life everlasting. I heard this one said, gospel maturity ultimately moves us from originally thinking, maybe God can save me. Gospel maturity moves us to saying, if God can save me, he can save them. Maturity in, in the gospel moves you from just saying, thank you, God, for this gospel, which is true. That's the milk. That's awesome. But the meat moving to maturity is to be a conduit, to carry that gospel, to care about other people, to hear about the gospel. And that doesn't include just bringing them to church. It means opening up your mouth. It means displaying the gospel and declaring the gospel in your relationships. And finally, we must rely on the presence of the Spirit for boldness, to clearly declare and sacrificially display the gospel. That's in our mission statement. I don't know if you recognize that, caught that. We must rely on the presence of the Spirit. It is not rooted in our personality, boldness. Bold, you're not going to be bold just based off of your personality. It's not rooted in our profession. It's not rooted in our intelligence. It is rooted in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. Have you ever thought that you didn't have the right personality to be a bold witness for Christ? Oh, I'm just introverted. I'm, I'm not really a people person. Have you ever felt like you didn't have the right occupation? Oh, well, evangelism is for pastors. I work in real estate. I, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm not a minister. How can I possibly share the gospel? Or how about, have you ever had a feeling that you haven't gotten enough education. I just don't know enough of the Bible. I'm going to wait until I can memorize all of Deuteronomy. Then I'll share the gospel. Do you ever feel that way? I never went to Bible college, right? I, I, I've heard people say that. I never went to Bible college like you, Pastor. So how can I share the gospel? I don't know enough Bible. What if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? There is no question that can be asked of you that the Holy Spirit doesn't know the answer to. And if the Holy Spirit is residing in you, you can stand bold and know that he'll give you the words to say when you need to say them. Brothers and sisters, opposition will come. Trials will come. And if you are not, don't, if you don't know the truth of the gospel, if you are not transformed by the gospel, and if you don't care about others hearing the gospel, how are you going to stand in the, in the face of it?
You are called to share the gospel. You're called to display the gospel. Just like these common fishermen. Just like this shy, introverted shepherd named Moses. You're called to do that. May we do that. So simply understand that the Lord will put the words in your mouth with boldness. But we must be ready and willing. If we're not prepared on the daily, if we're not in our prayer closet, if we're not digesting the word daily, then how can we expect to stand with the Spirit when opposition comes? So let me pray for you, all right? Let me, let's pray really quick. Our Father in heaven, we love you. I thank you for your word, the truth of your word that just jumps off the page. And I know this was kind of like a fire hydrant, lots of information. <laughs> but we want your word. More importantly, we want your spirit to inform us of this word and transform us by it. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. If they don't know the truth of the gospel, Lord, will you please continue to pull at their hearts Give them the boldness and courage to come and talk to one of us so that we can talk about the, the life that you bring. And, it, and Lord, I pray that you help transform us by your gospel. Thank you. We love you. This church loves you. All these things we lift up in your name.